Louder! Listening to Lights, Camera, and Exploitation. Uh, this is Norman Cabrera, special effects makeup for Scarecrows. Scarecrows was the first movie I did uh, when I was still living in Florida before moving to Los Angeles to work in effects out here. This is probably 35 years ago. Uh, it's my first movie, and it was really great, fantastic working on this film uh, with no movie experience up to the point that I started working on it. And um, what can I say? It was a blast. It was the fir- my first movie, and uh, it was a good time shooting it in the swamps of Florida. Um, the D- DP went on to do uh, a bunch of movies for Sam Raimi. Uh, a lot of people who worked on the film actually went on to have bigger film careers after that. And I'm grateful that this was one that started me off as well. So I uh, hope you enjoy the podcast. And what's up, everybody? And welcome to Lights, Camera, Exploitation, your guide to exploitive cinema. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser. And joining me as always is your doppelganger, Kangabanger from Down Under, Mr. Brody Kane. Howdy, howdy, motherfucker. And the second man on the grassy you know, Mr. Slickneck. Yo, 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 y'all. Today we have a doozy of an episode, but first, it's time for your slice of life. Brody, how goes it? Like I say every week, Mr. Bowser, it all goes well down in my neck of the woods. Um, wasted a fair bit of money on that uh, Black Friday sale there the other week. Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. So even though I only bought two films... Which I talked about on our bonus episode. I happened to uh, treat myself to a film called The Last Gasp from Vinegar Syndrome. Now, I'd been contemplating about buying this one for a while now, but as soon as I saw Robert Patrick, the T1000 in it, I fucking had to have it. The premise of it sounds amazing. Um, and the trailer looks fantastic. So, yeah, definitely bought that one. Uh, what did I watch this week? Uh, I went to the theaters and saw June. Fucking fantastic film from Denny Villeneuve. Uh, I mean, that man can do no wrong. Um, Quite the cinematic experience that he brings to the table upon each viewing of his films. Yeah, fantastic fucking film. Um, And that's only part one, so I'm looking forward to part two. Um, I can see TJ's busting to say something. You going to say something there, Mr. Bowser? Yeah, it's fucking great, isn't it? I'm just so happy that we can talk about it now. So fucking good. Uh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what else? Um, oh, I would actually just like to thank Norman Cabrera for taking the time to actually like get around us lads and um, like thanks for the fantastic intro for this. Uh, we are forever in your debt, mate, and much appreciated. Absolutely, it's fucking rad to have yeah. somebody of his caliber uh, do an intro for us. It's 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 an honor. Yeah, of course. Thank you, man. Nick? Um, but other than that, yeah, Nick, how you been, mate? Not too bad. Um, mostly just been uh, really reading at Dune. Been jumping a lot actually into the uh, art and music lately. I've been playing with uh, Aaron, who the listeners might might know as the Hidden Fourth Beetle Bro, and also from Death Talk. I've uh, been playing a lot of music, um, writing some stuff recently. 
uh, doing a lot of digital art, been spending a lot of my money on drawing tablet stuff and <laughs> styluses and whatnot. Been jumping a lot into that. Uh, TJ, I'm probably gonna throw something your way here pretty soon, actually, from that. Um, and really, that's that's about it for now. Gonna check out the uh, the new South Park movie, considering there's what fucking 13 more about to drop as well or something that they got approved <laughs> for like it's something ridiculous it's literally like 13 or 14 more movies but gonna watch the uh post-covid special tonight so hopefully that's gonna be as funny as i think it will be um really that's that's about it on on my end just that and still reading through dune uh tj what what have you been up to well so many fucking things man watching a ton of fucking movies recently uh we just dropped the black friday special where brody and i spent like 45 minutes talking about all the movies we bought and that was a fucking doozy so i'm kind of waiting for those to come in uh so vinegar syndrome's partners only thing launched today and they have the film savage harvest it's like a shot on video film but it's like compared to like Evil Dead, it's absolutely like this gnarly splatter movie. So I'm like super Ooh. hyped for that. And then there's another movie called Assholes, which is like a comedy that has like prosthetic anuses and stuff in it. So like I guess it's like pretty absurd. The cover art is just insatiable. Uh, you have to check it out. Uh, super cool that Vinegar Syndrome's doing those collaborations. I mean, I picked up quite a few during the Black Friday sale. And if you want to know what those are, go listen to our Black Friday special. Out but I pre-ordered MVD's Jack Frost 2 uh, this morning, and then I also picked up Kino Lorbear's Career Opportunities and Conquest from Lucio Fulci from Code Red. Excited to get those in the motherfucking mail! But yeah, uh, I watched the Children of Dune TV series recently, and that was fucking rad. If you don't know Mr. Slick Nick, that covers both Messiah and Children of Dune. Ooh, okay. Yes, so highly recommend watching that. And if you want to purchase that i believe umbrella entertainment just released one and two on a duo set on blu-ray so that includes both award-winning sci-fi series interesting and they're fucking fantastic james mcavoy and children of dune is something to behold talking about things to behold let's talk about this week's film which is 1988's scarecrows at first it seemed easy Take the money and drop from the sky. But they forgot that greed grips the mind like a vice. Turning the simplest dreams to nightmares. Coming to get you, Bert, you son of a bitch. Now it's personal. They landed in the field of a scarecrow. Just some kind of superstitious things that are used to ward off evil spirits. Fired at this thing. And he just kept coming. Bullets well, don't stop it. What are you scared in the house, man? Like human. Somebody is trying to scare us out of here. It's a deadly race. In which the hunters and the hunted are destined to become victims. Scarecrows, the stuff nightmares are made of. 
And that is from director William Wesley, who also directed Route 666 from 2001. Writers William Wesley, Richard Jeffries, and Larry Stamper. Cinematographer Peter Deming, who also did Evil Dead in 1987, Lost Highway in 1997, Mulholland Drive in 2001, and Twin Peaks in 2017. So clearly Lynch is a fan of him. Yes. <laughs> Music by Terry Plameri, who also did Body Chemistry in 1990, Night Hunter in 1996, Night Club in 2001, and Cowboy Zombies in 2013. Special effects by J.B. Jones, who did Caddyshack in 1980, Shoot to Kill in 1988, Cape Fear in 1991, and The Crow in 1994. Producers Ted Vernon, William Wesley, and Cammie Winnikoff. Assistant director Barry H. Walden, who would later produce Pearl Harbor in 2001, Kangaroo Jack in 2003, National Treasure Book of Secrets in 2007, and Venom, Let There Be Carnage in 2021. Special makeup effects artist Norman Cabrera, the man of the hour who worked on such films as Harry and the Hendersons in 1987, Planet of the Apes in 2001, Star Trek Beyond in 2016, and most recently, Ghostbusters Afterlife in 2021. Budget, $425,000! Starring Ted Vernon as Corbin, who also starred in Hammerhead Jones in 1986, Silent Hunter in 1995, Bikini Swamp Girl Massacre in 2014, the great hit that is. Michael David Sims as Curry, who starred in Master Masterminds in 1997, X2, X-Men United in 2003, and Santa Slay in 2005 with Bill Goldberg. Richard Viden as Jack, who starred in Hard Rock Zombies in 1985, Terminator 2, Judgment Day in 1991, and Demon Mind in 2017. Christina Sandburn as Victoria Christian as Kelly, who starred in Law and Order in 1991, a TV series. Alan Naomi in 1992, and Buds for Life in 2004. David Campbell as Al, you can call me Al, uh, who starred in Killer Workout in 1987, Deadly Prey in 1987, and Deadliest Prey in 2013, and that is a sequel. B.J. Turner as Burt, who starred in Sam's Son in 1984, Alien Private Eye in 1989, and Night Angel in 1990, Dax Vernon as Dax the Dog. <laughs> My boy. I love that we have dogs credited. I know. <laughs> we have to. We have to keep doing it. <laughs> Nick? After a band of ex-military criminals pulls off a multi-million dollar heist, they hop aboard a plane headed for Mexico. But when one of their own betrays them, they suddenly find themselves on the ground and on the run through a field of scarecrows near an abandoned farmhouse. As night sets in, the real nightmare begins. The men discover that there's a reason the farmhouse is empty, and now those who thought they were the hunters are being hunted by an unimaginable and malevolent force fucking a well done well said awards fan sporto in 1989 best film william wesley nominee so it also premiered at the Cannes film festival and they had dudes running around in scarecrow masks to promote it i do huh. believe did they did it perform there or was it going to perform no there? it actually played there fuck yeah. Why are we not talking about that? I wonder if it was after the bit, because there's another theatrical release bit that I have in yeah, the notes. It was well. during one of the attempts to release this film, because there's multiple versions that were trying to be shot. And again, this was like nightmare hell. But we'll get into that. Boys, let's get physical. Physical, 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 physical. Let's get into physical. 
So we have a release from Shout Factory that was released on June 2nd, 2015, runs 83 minutes, and it features an audio commentary with co-screenwriter Richard Jeffries, director of photography Peter Deming, and composer Terry Plumeri, audio commentary with director William Wesley and producer Cami Winnikoff, The Last Straw, an interview with special makeup effects creator Norman Cabrera, Cornfield Commando, an interview with actor Ted Vernon, original storyboard, still gallery, theatrical trailer, and that's Region A Lock. Brody, is there another release of it you have? Yes, there is. Uh, 88 Films mm. um, coming in at Region okay. B. And there is another Region B uh, one down this way called Cult Cinema, okay. I do believe. Hmm. So, yeah, there's a few versions of it, all unrated, obviously, um, because yeah. no one wants that rated shit. So We don't yeah. have the information for those two releases, but I'm sure that those have some other features. Boys? We have some additional information. So, uh, after Richard Jeffries finished Blood Tide, the production, uh, which was terrible and almost caused him to entirely quit the film industry, uh, when he got back from set, he was so mad, he wrote another script called The Vagrant. Uh, He saw an ad in a local paper asking for uh, screenplays, and he submitted that one. Uh, Wesley then called him and told him that his script was by far the best one. They talked about making the film, but Jeffries realized that Wesley had no real way of making it. So he left and ultimately ended up forgetting about it. So Wesley went on to try to make his own film, but wanted to use a monster that was still unique. So we have it mentioned in here that the group of mercenaries is called the Crows and wears all black uniforms. And I apparently whenever Wesley was trying to develop his concept, uh, and Brody could probably talk more about this, he wanted to think logically of if he was going to pick Scarecrows as the main villain, what would be the enemy of Scarecrows? So the crows is what he The wanted. crows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the logical choice. It's it's just something that we wanted to mention in here because it's <laughs> it's it's rad. But Brody, next oh, yeah. bit. But the screenplay had a temporary name of Old MacDonald's Farm and Evil Stalks. They shopped it around but had no luck and he moved to Florida. So uh, one day, uh, Wesley was was at a car lot owned by Ted Vernon, uh, and he asked him what he did. And Wesley basically just said, I make movies, and I'm looking for $150,000 uh, for my next project. Vernon apparently then swung around, opened a safe which was behind him filled with guns and stacks of cash. <laughs> he then proceeded to offer to fund the film as long as he could get a role and so could his beloved dog, Dax. <laughs> Wesley then proceeded to call back Jeffries. <laughs> so this guy's moving to Florida, then meets Ted Vernon, who then gives him money, but only if he can include him in the Scarecrow movie and his dog. Then he calls the guy back, but it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> so, to elaborate on that a little bit more, Jeffries was confused at first thinking he was talking about the vagrant, but he was actually talking about scarecrows. <laughs> Jeffries agreed, but drew up his own contract. He would directly speak with the director and then write a few pages more. He would get to a certain point, then stop, then Wesley would hand deliver here cash, and then he would write a little bit more <laughs> until the film was finished. <laughs> I love that because uh, he refused. He refused to take any other payment. He had to be there in person and yeah. give him cash money. If I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna get my money. <laughs> God, I love it. Uh, so uh, I also want to mention that the vagrant did eventually get made, and I guess it's not that good. So. 
<laughs> so uh, on one of these trips, while Wesley was in Florida uh, looking for someone to do the effects, he ended up stopping at a comic book store called Sunshine Comics, uh, ended up asking the clerk if he knew anyone that did makeup, uh, to which the clerk suggested a regular at the store, one Mr. Norman Cabrera. Wesley was shocked to find out that he was only an 18-year-old kid, uh, but did change his mind uh, and end up hiring him after he ended up seeing some of his work. Yeah, that guy uh, lived his life very much like Rick Baker did and just kind of sunk it completely into monster making and it paid off. And so uh, I, I did. This is part of it as well. I'll just do this one really quick just because. Okay. Uh, so it, I did actually find mention in this. Uh, of So Brian Albright, uh, film reviewer, does uh, just this big book that I've actually seen before. I've read some of it. It's actually really, really good if you're ever looking for just I've some heard cult about classics. This. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, his Brian Albright has this book called Regional Horror Films from 1958 to 1990. Uh, and due to this being shot in Florida ends up referring to it as one of the last great Florida horror films. Ah, okay. Um, and so the only other parts that I could find that were actually not filmed in Davies uh, was the exterior shots of the plane taking off and landing, which were actually filmed six weeks later in Mexico, <laughs> which DJ, as you pointed out, is why it's very obviously <laughs> taken during the daytime, <laughs> even though it's the middle of the night. The we, got in, we need some insert shots here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's a shame we're not a visual medium sometimes. <laughs> so during the production of the film, Wesley got crazy sick on set from all the mosquitoes and had symptoms of malaria. In between takes, he would walk off set and puke to the side. <laughs> Jesus. Didn't he? Uh, he ended up going to the hospital too. Yep. And they had to call in uh, locals to spray the area for mosquitoes because it was starting to become a real problem. Yeah. And it still didn't take care of the problem completely. So nope. It's a Florida swamp, man. <laughs> yep. So um, all of the, the guns uh, in the film, actually, uh, <laughs> speaking of topical, were made of uh, balsa wood and painted black. Uh, so they had actually, they had hired a guy. Uh, they were able to get together enough money to hire a guy to come on for one day so they could film all the scenes where they fire guns because he actually was able to bring in prop guns that yes. actually fired. <laughs> but they only had him for one day. Yes. <laughs> This is the go. 80s, you know, when yeah. CGI didn't exist. Okay, that's enough commentary. Uh... <laughs> Brody? So in an interview with Scream Factory, actor and producer Ted Vernon talks about the film itself. Scarecrows came about because Bill Wesley and I talked. He was my photographer for The Auto Trader. He had this script and I said, okay, let's make this movie. I was an executive producer. I got that credit and I was a star of the film. And my dog Dax was also a star in the film, which I miss him a lot. I would have to say that filming that film was an interesting experience for me in my life. So I ran my car business, ran it all day and then worked all night for whatever time for the four weeks that we did this. So I worked all day, all night and got about two hours sleep a night. It was interesting, but I loved it. Good mind. So, uh, Vernon also continues to talk about acting in the film. Um, physicality is is me. Wait, what? That's correct. Physicality is me. He's basically describing oh, okay. himself. <clears throat> so, Vernon uh, goes on to talk about acting in the film. Uh, physicality is me. It wasn't a challenge because it's what I do. I'm always cast as the tough guy because I am. It wasn't much of a challenge. It was fun. It was exciting. And, you know, with acting, uh, you really play yourself, but you're changing it a little bit. Corbin is a rough guy with a heart. He's kind of the muscle in the movie, but with a heart to then sacrifice himself to save the girl. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <Pretty much. laughs> 
I, I really liked how, like, at the start of it, they went from, oh, he's going to go psycho off on his own, but he's the one sacrificing himself to save the girl at the end. Yeah. yeah. This is fucking interesting. Working with William Wesley, the director, was an interesting experience because he's really a bright guy and he knows what he wants from people. You know, he lucky I didn't wring his freaking neck. We... We came that close a couple of times and, and I said, pack it up. I don't need this shit. I'll write off the money. I had a couple of meetings with him like that, but he got the movie done. He's done other films since. So yeah, God bless him. <laughs> yeah, I think part of that was because uh, he was an inexper- inexperienced as an actor. Wesley made sure he didn't have that many lines and he got really upset that he didn't have enough lines. And Wesley yeah, really allow- was a first time director too. So yeah. Wesley actually <laughs> said to him, he's like, you're more the strong silent type, which that I think that's what really pissed him off. Yeah, I can see that. His first role and he's being typecasted already. <laughs> uh, so he goes on to talk about the the film's reputation. Uh, he says, you know, I'm still proud that I did the movie. I starred in a horror film that's still remembered from the 80s and it's great stuff. I have people contacting me all the time and I'm getting work all around the world because of that movie. Scarecrows was the first film that I starred in and it's a film that's remembered as a cult favorite. So I'm honored by that. And we also have him talking about working with Mr. Norman Cabrera himself. So working with Norman was great. He was just out of high school and he came in and worked those wonderful scarecrows. The kid's a genius. He's not a kid anymore, but then he was, and it was great working with him. So uh, Norman himself in an interview with Scream Factory, uh, I believe it's the one from the release, uh, talking about the film itself. uh, He says it was very much like a student film kind of vibe to which we were all learning. There were no quote unquote professionals on the film. It was very much a grassroots guerrilla filmmaking thing. Scarecrows was my very first movie. I had no real professional experience when I did the film. I was 18 years old. We were all kids. It was almost like doing a Super 8 movie with a budget because it was all college kids or younger. A lot of the guys on the crew were 19, and I think the director, William, was the oldest on the set, and he was 30. Yeah. Though Cabrera talks about creating these fucking wonderful looking scarecrows. When the time came to create the scarecrow creatures, we had already talked about it like crazy. I was already doing sketches and all that stuff, but finally we got enough money to actually start the production, and then I was able to start doing some clay designs, sculpting some heads, trying out different ideas of how the masks were going to be made. It was like, were they all going to be burlap or were they partially reviewed flesh? But one of the cool ideas was that when you first see them, they are mainly covered in burlap. So the idea was throughout the progression of the film, once they get shot, pieces of burlap ripping away, you're seeing more of what's underneath and it turns out to be the this Fowler family. Basically, they satanic farmers or whatever they are. Demonic the demons. Others- <laughs> oh, that was but- the best. <laughs> But the other scarecrows that are on the farm are the people that they have turned into scarecrows, which I think is a very cool and ambitious idea for pretty much a no-budget film. This is really cool. So uh, Cabrera goes on to talk about the locations. Uh, he says, the locations were very challenging. Uh, we shot in Davie, Florida. It's right near the Everglades. In fact, it's right on the border of this place called Alligator Alley. Uh, it was a swamp. I mean, we were literally filming in a swamp, and it was just crawling with mosquitoes, like we mentioned earlier. People were getting sick from getting bitten by the mosquitoes and we were shooting all night. Then they found this really cool abandoned farmhouse which was straight out of Evil Dead and it was a real place. That's the vibe he wanted. Something dilapidated, a shack kind of thing and they found this two-level little whitewashed shack that was completely falling apart and really not safe at all. It was going to be torn down but they brought some guys in and reinforced the beam 
rooms of the place so that we could shoot inside. It apparently only cost them around $250 a month to shoot in it, but like previously mentioned, in order to shoot in it, they had to do all that work first, and I believe by the time that they actually got to the point where they were able to start filming, the budget was gone. <laughs> Which caused yeah. uh, Cammy Winkenhoff, what the hell's her name? Win Winnikoff. Cammy Winnikoff <laughs> to have to go back out and find more money for the production. So, yeah, that's always fun. <laughs> Looking about it. Even after inflation, it's not that much. It's about $625. So. The Cabrera talks about working with the gore throughout the film. Bill initially wanted a bloody aversion so that when we screened it for the ratings board, he'd be like, okay, you have to cut this out, but then he would still have to have something to work with. So we would do a drier pass with blood gushing and then do a wetter pass, like a really gory pass. So while we were shooting, we would do both. There was one shot in particular when they put a bag over a guy's head and they stab him in the face. It was just a rubber head that I had made. Take one was just a tiny little gush of blood and Bill was like, what the fuck was that? Actually, what was that? I want to see blood. And I had a fire extinguisher that I pump up blood through and I was like, if you want blood, I'll give you blood. So I gave this thing a few extra pumps and here comes take two. So they pull the bag over this guy's head, bring the knife down and it was a ridiculous amount of blood. <laughs> Bill was like, that's perfect. And I was like, oh, come on, that's... That much blood wouldn't come out of a guy's face. However, that's the one they ended up using for the unrated version. And in the context of a horror film, it works. That scene is so fucking intense. I, that is I love my, it. Yes. It's going to get brought kill. back up later. It, yep. <laughs> you don't realize what's going on in the scene. Like, oh my God, they're converting him. They only show you snippets and then like, fuck, yeah. Then just bam. It's kind of like oh. uh, in Hellraiser 2 when you see a, Hena a Cenobite being created. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, yeah. But this is just but a much there, more, you know. <laughs> but there is meaning behind that scene and that dictates into the f photo of the Fowler family, which I will elaborate on in our notes. So, uh, in an interview with 88 Films, who did the Region B release Brody mentioned earlier, uh, producer Kami Winnikoff talks about jumping on the film. Uh, she says, so how I got into the film uh, was when I was very young, I was going to run my father's business. So I always grew up thinking I was going to run a business. And then when I was in my third year of school, he sold it. So I was sitting in Atlanta thinking of what the hell am I going to do with my life? And what led to the decision was that when I was younger, I always studied the neighborhood playhouse on the weekends just for fun. It was something that I did to go into the city to be close to my dad while he was working, and I loved it. So then I thought, well, okay, I'm going to try to get onto Miami Vice, which was the hottest show ever in the 80s. Dot Jackson! So I kept bothering this transpo guy, telling him over and over that I job. He was like, stop bothering me. <laughs> There's this guy, Bill Wesley, making this movie. Go see if he needs somebody. So he gave me his number. I called him. He was sitting alone in this apartment saying he's making this movie. At the time, it was called Old MacDonald Head of Farm. I signed on, and he hired me as a PA. The only person who was on before me was Norman Cabrera, and the three of us just just started. You know, part of me feels like if they went with the title Death Stock, it would stand out much more now in today's like world that is this flooded with Scarecrow films. But then again, yeah. this film can probably be attributed to that said flooding of Scarecrow films. I'm just saying it'd probably be easier to find. I do like that whole Death Stocks thing, because it also plays with yeah. like, like the corn aesthetic, Stocks. I don't know. Stock of corn. Yeah. Yeah. I'd call, I'd call it corn stalkers. <laughs> I think Freebie. that's a different movie. Uh <laughs> <laughs> 
Go on, Nick, elaborate a little bit on it. Go on. <laughs> it's like deliverance meets children of the corn, and that's as far as I'll go. <laughs> yeah, you could pitch that to me. I'd give you money for it. I got so Winnicoff. Where are we? So we have Winnicoff. So we have Winnicoff talking about the film's budget. There we go. The budget of the film. So the movie was originally budgeted at $150,000 e-dues, and it wound up costing $400,000 e-dues. So we ended up bringing in new investors. We were all very young, and we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. I guess we were very lucky. We had a lot of people on the film that had talent. And so we were able to really negotiate great deals for the money. So uh, (laughs) Winnikoff goes on to tell the story of production designer Gary Roberts. Uh, She says, so there's a great story about about Gary Roberts. We had a shot and Peter was ripping his hair out because there was a light in the shot and we couldn't figure out how we were going to get it this this light out of the shot. I really don't know if I should be saying this on camera, uh, but Gary went out with his pistol, shot the light out, turns around and goes okay roll sound (laughs) 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 fucking cowboy i like it so winnikoff talks about the wrong flight home so we finished the film we were completely exhausted and i had booked the flight home through ted vernon's agent i had said that i wanted to go non-stop i don't care about anything else just get me back to la so the agent had written the times of the flight on the outside of the envelope and gave me the tickets to which I was just so tired that I didn't even look at the tickets. So we drove down to Miami airport and when we got to the ticket counter, the woman said, you're at the wrong airport. So Wesley's pacing the airport all upset. So we took another flight, which was the Eastern flight out, but we had been booked on the Delta flight. So when we got to the airport in LA, the editor of the film picked us up and he was white as a ghost. I asked if he was sick or something or something else and he, and he said, you both are pretty much ghosts. Everyone had thought that we went down in the Delta flight out of Fort Lauderdale. So further, this probably is where people would be like, this film's cursed. Because if you look at like the everything that happened in the production of this, like it was everything that went wrong, could have went wrong. And mm-hmm. like everything was against them. This is just a whole nother layer of like, holy fuck, the filmmakers yeah. could have died. And just because for, of uh, sheer luck. For for context, for the uninitiated, it was uh, Delta Airlines Flight 191. Um, the flight that they were supposed to be on hit a microburst and the flight crew decided to go through the storm, even though they hadn't been trained for it. The hit the microburst. Uh, the plane went down. Uh, and it killed most of everybody on board. I think there were about 26 survivors, but the section that they were to be seated in had zero. So like they were not going to make it if they had actually made the right flight. They made a movie on it. Yeah. It's so weird with stuff like that, like how Seth MacFarlane missed his flight when he was supposed to be on one of the ones that got hijacked during 9-11. Mark Wahlberg was one of them. Mm-hmm. Or, or hell, Toxic Zombies, the director died in 9-11. Yep. He was working at the World Trade Center at a yep. brokerage firm at the time. That's correct. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk so, about the film premiere, Nick? Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, upon release, uh, the film premiered uh, in Des Moines, Iowa for precisely a one week run, simply so that the creators could tell video distributors at the time that the film had had a theatrical release to increase <laughs> the sales. <laughs> hey, yeah. So that kind of plays into the last bit here. So once they finally did tell the video distributors about that theatrical release, they then were picked up. But 
Shortly after they were picked up, the film company that picked them up went bankrupt. It was then shelved for three years before being released in 1988 on VHS, and it was heavily marketed with Norman's name credited for effects because by then he already did uh, Fright Night 2 and Harry and the Hendersons and stuff like that. It ended up making over $3 million from home media sales, though, and they offered both a rated and unrated version of the film. So it might not at first been the hit or the cult success, but once that baby saw VHS, she took off. It got there, man. Yes, it did. Yeah, it did. So, boys, let's talk about it! Okay, favorite performance of the film. Brody, it's your pick. Take it away. Ooh, ooh, right, so I'm going to kick it off with Michael David Sims's Curry. I think he's great in this film, and he really does truly showcase this leadership role of the group uh, every time he hits the screen. And, you know, he even though he talks a lot of shit and these corny one-liners, but he will do anything to help out his crew in the firing line of death, I find. So it's just a shame that he ended up being too gullible in the end. Uh, but overall, I think Michael made it his character and portrayed Curry pretty, like, yeah, pretty good for the film. Um, out of all of them, he copped it sweet the most when you think about it. They really fucking toyed with him to the point where he mentally broke and then they fucking, yeah, kill I him. I mean, he got to the point where he thought they were already dead and then- Yeah. And um, I mean, yeah. Oh, what more can I say about Mr. Sims that, you know, he, every time he graces the screen with his presence, it's, you just can't take your eyes off him. I think he's fantastic. Bet you slick Nick. I am actually going to have to go with one Mr. Richard Vedan uh, as Jack. I really liked his portrayal. He was the perfect amount of comedic relief throughout it. Like, it was just every time. Like, every time he said anything, I was cracking up. And it was great. Because, I mean, you have it to kind of juxtapose Michael's like absolute breakdown over the course of the film, um, which I mean, in and of itself is great. He's right. It's probably on par. It's probably equal. I'm just going to have to go with Fidance because I just I really like the com like the comic relief for all of it. The going after his harmonica and and like that's all he seems to care about when the plane's going down. He's sitting there with headphones on. He has no idea like what's going on. Uh, just I don't know. It, it just I, th I felt like it was needed almost just that level of comic relief really was. And he did it very very well. Um, like he was also one of the more rational ones, you know, whenever they've realized, Hey, Bert's been split open like a pig and stuffed with money. Everyone else is like, Oh, he's messing with us. And he goes, no, 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 no. This is fucked. We need to leave now. <laughs> so like, even though he's the comic relief, he's still the smart one. It's kind of like Marty from cabin in the woods a little bit. So like, I, I guess that might go into impact and takeaways a bit, but, uh, but yeah, I guess that's mine. TJ, what what did you think? What was, it was yours. So I'm going to go with what both of you guys said and said what's more interesting is the dynamic that the Jack and Curry characters share and the friendship that mm. plays off on screen, mm -hmm. especially once Jack gets killed and the way that we see the, the Curry character change after that because he really starts to panic once Jack dies and then they start haunting him with his voice. So I think that that dynamic's the, probably the most entertaining and that performance between the both of them is really cool because then you see it come full circle mm -hmm when Jack returns as the goggle scarecrow. Uh, which is yeah. so cool. Which is very so badass. Cool. He almost looks like a Cenobite. He does. Yeah. It's, oh man, the effect for that is so awesome. It 
yeah, it, it's pretty fucking rad. But uh, honorable mention goes has to go to Ted Vernon just because mm-hmm. at the end he really brings he really brings his A game and it's really believable. Uh, that whole like action sequence where he's like, okay, I just got fucked up by this scarecrow zombie, but I can't let the plane go down and let him kill mm-hmm. this girl. So you really see him really kind of act his ass off in that one sequence and really uh, make it believable. So honorable mention to Ted for that one scene. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so favorite set piece. We have to go with the house. Absolutely. There's really, really only one. I mean, that the fields. I suppose, yeah. We got the fields, the plane, and the house. It's, the plane's pretty shit. Really uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much just the fields and the house. Well, I mean, the plane is just, it's just, it's a metal corridor. Yeah. Like, there's, they, nothing there's nothing to in it. it. Yeah. Because it is a cargo plane that they stole out of Camp Pendleton. They could have equipment in it. You know what I like about the house? Each room has its own fucking story. You know, like, mm. especially when we cut from one room, you know, featuring a photograph of the Fowl family to a room of black Cabin in the woods. magic. Yeah. Hey, you talked yeah, about uh, it, the uh, the picture on the wall. What's the importance of that? That will pr- that will lead into my favorite kill. Oh, I, well, I will okay. talk about that. But but obviously that fa- that's the Fowler family, the zombies that we see throughout the film. Yeah. That's yeah. favorite set piece given. definitely has to go to like the Evil Dead esque shack that we see the, to the Fowler family. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it's definitely fucking rad as hell. And like th- knowing that it, it was dilapidated and they had to fix it up just to shoot on it just makes it even cooler because it is in fact mm. a shithole and they probably had to do bare minimum production design because of it. So. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, yeah. It's like the Brewery said, they got lucky with the location. Yeah. Extremely lucky with it. And I would agree. It's a perfect style for the film. Just works. I can see it. I mean, scouting locations come across that thing. Just be, I can just see it. Just, yes. Yes, this. We're, we're going to use this. I can't see how they wouldn't. Uh, Nick? Absolutely. I mean, house, man. Yeah, okay. The house. All right, so that in the graveyard a bit, though. The, the graveyard is is definitely creepy. The area around where the parachute hits. The choice to use metal crosses instead of wooden, and then even to bring it up in the script. Yep. That you have to hang them via barbed wire, and you can't just nail them in. Uh, that's mm. extra brutal. So just and having- yeah, Jack, Doesn't Jack talk about that? He's yeah. like, you can't uh, put the bolts through your hands. You got to put it through your wrists. Yeah. It's like this yeah. little bones in your hands. They can't do it. Well, you can't use nails any- You got to- It's metal. You got to do it. You know, you yeah. can't do nails. He's like, well, you still have to do it through the wrist. So just shut so, up. <laughs> so that leads me to ask, did these guys potentially know their own fate? Like they literally built metal crosses for themselves to be these scarecrows or what? Here's how I say it. Uh, uh, this will talk about story if I talk about it now. Fuck. Uh, true. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll talk about it later. We'll yeah, talk we'll about talk about it. yeah, we'll get we'll get to it. Okay. Uh, favorite scene and shot, uh, Brody. No, I mean I I fuck man, I love this film obviously so much. I think. The scene where Bert comes back to life, well, as a lifeless corpse, and you know he displays his supernatural strength, and you know he's filled with straw and money. That whole entire scene is fucking brilliant, brutal stuff, and you know uh, every body horror fan's wet dream. But it's it's the creativity uh, that that's behind that scene that really drives it home for me. Um, you know, especially after they dismember the body in, into pieces, Curry slowly slices the corpse open even more, um, just to dry out the money covered in blood. You know the sound design for that scene fucking outstanding uh made me cringe i will admit um you know but it, it just leaves us with a variety of questions you know um but 
what I like about it the most, it really leaves it up to us to conjure uh, our own thoughts about the supernatural force that surrounds this place. Um, it's fucking brutal, fantastic scene. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's the first real bit of action that we get into the, the entire film. I think it's like 40 minutes in, and that's when shit just turns south real quick. So, yeah. So my favorite scene is the ending scene. Like, well, my well, shot, I guess, is when you see everything turn off. That kind of tells you that the, yeah. the, the story's over, and, and they yep. use those elements. And I, I think that's kind of cool because whenever I wrote my own story with Brody, uh, we also ended it in a very similar fashion where we do exterior shots of our entire setting and then zoom out in that way and to show everything's gone now. Uh, I think using that as an element in the story and in filmmaking is super cool and I love how they use it here. Uh, scene I mentioned earlier wherever uh, Ted Vernon does the whole thing in the, the back of the plane to save the day. Just super cool action film thing. Yeah, I dig it. Nick? I am super fun. Um, I'm going to have to go uh, with Curry's breakdown after he's left behind or he stays behind. He forces everyone else <laughs> out. Uh, I am going to have to go with that probably from start to finish. From from Jack returning to chasing him into the back uh, to Bert's head in the fridge talking to him to just all of it crescendoing to him going into the the little black magic room uh, and then just absolutely panicking the the body grabbing uh, his his leg yes. and causing him to panic and empty his whole magazine into it and then turn around get you know Cinnabite Jack is out there to opening the door and then just into his death um, it's not my favorite death it is my favorite scene but it just includes his death um, but yeah it, I mean, as for shot, though, I am going to have to go with I can't remember his name right now, but the uh, the the father, the pilot, the yeah. shot of, of Kelly discovering his body and the pan up of you Super get cool. his feet to you can now see where the, the gash ends from when he's been split open. Then it goes up to the reveal and you see the barbed wire all wrapped around his wrists and going across and one of his eyes is missing and everything. It's just so brutal uh, to just, you know, and then Corbin pulled it. That shot is just so good. It's, I like DJ Center. It's very Hellraiser. I love these little scream he does in the plane. He's like, ah! yeah. and then he like stabs Ted. Yeah. Ah! Ah! <laughs> it's like a crow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so good. Speaking of things like that, effect and death, Brody. Oh, right. Fuck yeah. All right. So I'd have to go with the death of Jack. Okay. Um, You know, now, like we were saying before, uh, but the scarecrow slicing off his hand um, to use it as her own, followed up by a hessian bag over the head uh, with a nice little surprise of a Rambo knife through the fucking face is the definition of brutality, I find, and it's great stuff. The whole effect of Jack's new face reveal is to me an iconic piece of horror history, you know. Um, it, it, it's the shock value that, that deserves um, a, lo a lot more attention in the horror community, I find. Um, it's haunting stuff. I mean, the, the fact that we'll <sighs> – the fun fact about that whole cutting off Jack's arm scene, um, now this is what I'll tie into the photo. If you look at the photo carefully out of the three guys out of the Fowlers, one of them's actually missing a hand. So the reason for him to cut off Jack's hand and sew it to his own to use, I think that's a clever little fucking You also thing see to throw that in knife there. In, in the cabin earlier in the movie. It's the one stuck in the stump in the yep. Black Magic Room. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, um, I mean, there's all these clever little tie-ins that you've just really got to pay attention to. Uh, yeah, I 
I, I think it's fantastic. And like having being a supernatural film, it, it doesn't really have to explain every little detail, but it, you know it's there and you know there's just a sinister force fucking with these group of people. And I think, yeah, the, the reveal of Jack, like Nick was saying before, is, yeah, fucking fantastic. Yeah, that whole scene. I was going to say, I have to agree. Um, Jack's is probably my favorite as well. Just the the shock value of it. Uh, the, the knife through the... Because it had to have hit like right like right in between his eyes was it where it looked like the knife came down at so just the effect of it and the the squish and like how norman said earlier that he pumped all the extra blood out and they went yes and he's like well that's not okay well we'll keep it we'll do that <laughs> instead i like to see this kind of internal take on it um because another bit of detail uh like you said with because i actually didn't notice in the fowler picture that one of them was missing the hand i did know that the scarecrow was missing one because curry goes off about it whenever he runs back in screaming that jack's dead um i did not notice that but i did notice another bit of the detail is when they stab in uh and it just like crushes in like the top of his head as you can kind of see with the bag that's the part that's covered up by the uh, the night vision goggles whenever he reanimates and he comes back so you've got like the pulled flesh showing all of his teeth and everything but like the caved in area they've like replaced it with the night vision goggles and it's almost almost like cyberpunky body horror from mm. that which i just thought was a really cool part i am gonna have to give an honorable mention to roxanne's death though because the hand pull from the pitchfork physically made me recoil in my chair a bit (laughs) hey and the snake eyes and that's my favorite death (laughs) there you go (laughs) only only because i love pitchfork deaths and i love the visual of the blood dripping on the dice while she's getting killed yeah it's just so fucking rad it's almost a little jello almost almost a little bit a little yeah. bit i was like oh symbolism i love it <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I was wondering i was like oh that's art house Ooh, yes. i know someone who's gonna like that <laughs> it was rad so thoughts on story i'll tell you how i interpreted the story and then you guys can look yep so I think yep. that they went to rob that treasury or whatever the fuck it was. It was Camp Pendleton. It's Camp a Marine Pendleton. Corps camp. Oh, Marine mm-hmm. Corps camp. Well, one of my I, buddies was stationed there. I think that while they were doing that, they died pretty early on. All of them did. And I agree. then this is them in hell. 100% agree. This is their journey Wait. into hell. And then them becoming like, like I we kept re- referencing Hellraiser and Cenobites. This is kind of like that girl's Kirsty in the in, in this situation. You know what I mean? Where she's like, these terrible things are happening to these other people and she's just kind of along for the ride and surviving. Uh, you can look at it this way but like I think that this is that these people's journey into hell and that this is how they're getting their punishment is having to deal with this crazy supernatural family. So yeah, I don't think that they ever made it out and that this whole thing is this them getting their uh, comeuppance from their bad deeds. Or do you think, yeah, that that's an awesome theory or do you think that fate was going to be like, okay, I'm going to let you rob this because when Curry talks about it, he's like, how come we kept fire and they kept falling and they kept fire and we... That's Not what like makes me, that's what makes me think that they died so early on. Like they, as soon as that thing happened, like they all just died early on because then none of that yeah. makes sense to them. It, like everything, like like you mentioned, like you just mentioned, we kept firing yeah. and they kept falling. It would just all seem too easy. Well, if they all fucking mm. died immediately, it all would have seemed easy. Yeah, yeah. Or was or was fate leading them into 
a fucking like I thought about that them into, but a lot of yeah, the stuff like that happens survive, once they're there yeah. has no logic so that's what makes me feel like so like that's why yeah. I was like so maybe this is hell I then- can kind of see like an in-between a little bit between like what Brody's saying and what you're saying as well is it could be they're not quite into hell uh the the fowlers are almost like demons bringing them in the like, demonic yeah. demon like I said it's like in. they're the Cenobites and this is their journey and like I said that girl's just kind of along the ride because she was kidnapped mm. I mean then it kind of makes me wonder why they put in the radio call like at the end at the, at well, the cause, start because she the survives end. it all you know what I mean so, like she goes through hell and gets out on the other side because at the radio call yeah, they right. say they find everyone dead except her no trace of anyone else there's just blood and then there's her and the dog yeah yeah so it's like it's it, it's either a transcendent into hell or it actually did happen so it sets up for a sequel because when you think about it Curry Roxy and Jack become the new three scarecrows at that fucking place or in addition they to take it. over the field well yeah so that sets up for a sequel in that sense you could you just have but to keep did. putting people in that scenario yeah absolutely they become the the new fit well the fowler families they or all those scarecrows you see are other folks they're well, mm. yeah because there's more than just well, the that, three scarecrows you know what i mean well that's that's right and yeah i suppose because yeah. you can hear you can hear some of them mimicking uh like why don't you say something burton yeah. motherfucker and all that yeah. yeah that's yeah oh fuck man it's like so many so, ways like, you can what if that is film. like a graveyard for lost souls so like people who tra- who went over it's like this is just where all the bad souls collect just a way to look at it as well you know like in beetlejuice where they have all these different rooms for like the different souls like what if this is like one of those rooms yeah well because carrie actually goes like they're meant to warn off evil spirits but they yeah. end up becoming evil spirits so exactly. it's like well fuck so curry is like actually saying all this shit that could actually lead into like, well i think that he, they realize it right. they realize it whenever things stop making sense and logic stops working because whenever the whenever that dude's walking around and he's already been dead they're like okay this fucking doesn't make sense and then that's when they start questioning reality which is why i thought the whole hell route nick uh yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm gonna have to agree. I just had a, a little bit of a rev during this. I didn't realize actually that I had seen Route Six uh, Six 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 before because while we were talking about this, and you said because it was setting up for the sequel of of there are those new scarecrows to be brought back. I went, you know, I I was thinking in my head, I went, you know, I actually saw a movie when I was a kid. I remember on yeah, TV, Route Six Six is just like this of, of a chain gang where they came back as zombies, yep. and and, I was like, <laughs> and so I went and I looked at him and I went Route Six. And I was like, wait a fight. <laughs> But like that's that's funny. I just had that kind of in yeah. That was weird. I didn't realize I'd seen the movie before. Yeah. <laughs> and the movie's just really fucking hokey. Yeah, I do remember that just from as a kid. I just remember someone getting pulled into a mm. freaking manhole cover by a zombie chain gang member, and was just like, "Wait a minute, I've seen a movie like this before." I just typed it up as we were uh, talking. I'm like, "Never mind, I've seen this movie." <laughs> Lou Diamond Phillips. Lou Diamond <laughs> Phillips and Lori Petty, and is right. <laughs> Yes. Impact and takeaway. So clearly uh, in the movie Cabin in the Woods, this clearly uh, influenced the uh, redneck family uh, mm-hmm. people. And that uh, even as far as Brody goes, these ho- in the, the the rooms in this house seem like they're different and all tell a story. Oh, kind of like the Cabin in the Woods house. <laughs> there you go. Yep. And I, say, and, and I even made the allusion to Jack being like Marty, the, uh, the comic relief being technically the smartest one, though Cabin in the woods played that even up for further laughs because it was uh the weed that he was smoking counteracted all their their dumb horror cliche chemicals they were pumping in and so if you think about it what, what we just got done talking about like the whole scenario of if, if this is a real 
recurring journey to hell for people. Right. Like this that's another thing. Like this is a scenario that that people are forced into over and over again. So that's another thing that's kind of like an influence there. You know. Yeah, and I mean, plus you know, like you said earlier as well, the inf of scarecrow related horror movies yeah. that came after this. So like, the only other thing that I can think of is Dark Knight, right, Brody? That uh, precedes. Yeah, it's it. yeah, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. But that's not is, necessarily oh. anything along the lines of this. This is kind of slashery. Dark Knight's kind of more. How would you describe that, Brody? Not exactly it, slashery, it, more ghost. Nah, it, 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 it's it's a supernatural film. Yeah. Uh, when you get that twist at the end, uh, but it's more of a revenge tale. Yeah. Um, I'd say Jeff Burr's Night of the Scarecrow is a little bit more along the lines of this slasher-esque. Yes. Because like, it's like a warlock that comes back from the dead um, and just absolutely fucking guts people like left, right, and center. So, you know, it's kind of more along the lines of that slasher film. I don't know. It's a bit of both because this is a supernatural film as well, but zombie scarecrows. Yeah. So it's kind of it's in, it meets in the middle. I, I find. I, I will I will just say that the, the one thing that I really did take away from this film, and I think we said before about it in the notes, is that it's it's like this clever little storytelling of our criminals. How it's that dynamic of using a heist crew of stealing money, a bit like crows. It's just it's a fantastic representation of crows in general stealing, sh like just being yeah. cunning creatures all in black, um, just stealing things to survive, you know. Um, and it just represents them so fucking well. I think it's fantastic, um, especially when you've got a no budget script, pretty much. You like you, the symbolism? You know, you to, I do. I do. I, I like the overall tone and symbolism of the film. I just speaking of that, you remind me of the tone, the music. Uh, sometimes it yeah. sounds like re like it references old timey horror, like not this era, yes. but more like late, like early sixties, maybe even early Hammer films, like early seventies stuff. Like I feel yes. like it references that uh, with its sound tonally. How do you guys mm -hmm. feel about that? Yeah, absolutely, you got the old violin and the crows gawking, and and also gothic, a gothic well. feel to it at times because of that. Yeah. The crows and stuff, almost Edgar Allan Poe-ish. Very Hammer Dracula. There you go. That's a good. Very yeah. Hammer Dracula. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Fuck it. I just I, look. I just, I just I just want a prequel with the Fowler family dealing with the black arts and magic and all yes. that shit. How they came to be these zombies, zombified scarecrows, and killing other trespassers on their land. I, I think that would be a fucking fantastic fun time. Do a fan or film. If not, we, I'm about to or say, it would a, work as a short film. We get a sequel with Jack, Curry, and Roxy as these new scarecrows. Mr. Cabrera, if you wanted to come back for it. Just so you could do the Jack Scarecrow again. Just putting it out there, mate. Just putting it out there. Yeah, absolutely. I would literally make Jack the lead scarecrow. Fuck. I, look, I really want someone to make that bus for me. Um, yeah, I know. I need it. I need it. Bad. It's so good. You can literally it's just put a Texas Chainsaw Massacre scenario in this setting. So it'd be like people get into a car accident, right? But they don't act, but they don't know that they get into a car accident. And then they drive into this part. And then at the end, they find out that they were in a car accident. And it's just like. And they die. Yeah. Nah, there is a movie. <laughs> there is a movie called Husk that came out in 2000s. Can't remember when. But it's basically a quintessential like sequel to this. Well, it's it's a sequel remake ish type to this film. I may have seen um, it. I think yeah. I know what you're talking about because that sounds so familiar. I'm pretty sure I've seen Husk. Yeah, they get into a car crash. A scarecrow jumps out in front of them. They walk through a cornfield. They oh, find this abandoned house. It's from the After Dark Originals. It That's is the one. It's yes. considered a remake of Scarecrows. Yes. Okay. 
when did Jacob's Ladder come out? Because the whole the whole plot of Jacob's Ladder was all Jesus Christ, bro. It literally two, is the exact plot I just described. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was like. Holy fuck! I honestly <laughs> think we can make it better. Yeah, you know what? Fuck the car thing. Let's do boats. Can we do motorcycles retrofitted to boats? (laughs) Okay, boys, let's rate this son of a bitch. Mutilating corpses stuffed with money and straw out of five. Brody Kane, take it away. 4.2. Slick Nick? 3.7. I'm going to give it a 3.5. And that is an LCE score of 3.8 out of five for 1988's Scarecrows from William Wesley. Next episode is the final for season three. Thank you for joining us on this exciting fucking season of films. The next episode is Standard Cop from 1994. So we're going to end this season the same way we started it with people with telekinetic powers that can make your head explode. But now this guy's a cop. So, uh, (laughs) well, I'm excited to review this movie. Uh, We'll be doing the vinegar syndrome release 4k release that we all have the pleasure of owning thanks to my heavy-handed influence uh (laughs) but yes waiting to watch it we are excited to talk about that film and maybe we'll have people involved who knows we will see uh shout out again to norman for introing and outroing the show uh much appreciated bro but i think that that is all for this episode go check out our bonus episode of our black friday special uh available on project louder done it this is the pod boss tj bowser signing off this is the doppelganger kanga banger all the way from down under saying i'll catch you motherfuckers next week slick nick saying good to be back this week y'all uh see y'all next week to see this one out the finale mm-hmm. and thanks for listening to lights camera exploitation trespassers will be violated <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>